Well, welcome everybody. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first of our events this year um, on Labor and Brexit. As, as everyone knows, I'm sure the next two or three weeks are going to be absolutely critical, I think, both for Labor and for, for Britain. And so uh, there could hardly be a more apposite time to hear from our speakers. I say speakers because we have speakers, but one of them is halfway between Holborn and here, um, no doubt engaged in um, important parliamentary business. So I'm just going to introduce them both, um, starting with Deborah Mattinson, who's, who's here. Um, Deborah's one of the three founders of the Britain Thinks uh, organisation. And she originally studied law at the University of Bristol, and she's got absolutely decades of experience in, in market research and public opinion. She was, in fact, the pollster to Gordon Brown, both when he was Prime Minister and earlier when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. And um, she's the author of a book that reflects on that whole period called Talking to a Brick Wall. So you have to read that to see who she was talking to. Um, her analysis um, of the evolution of British public opinion is very frequently referred to, as I'm sure many of you know, in the, in the British press and is a subject of um, um, sustained discussions. So I'm very pleased to be able to welcome her today. I'm now going to introduce Clive Lewis, who, um, <laughs> as you may know, is the MP for Norwich South, and he's currently the Shadow Treasury Minister. Um, Just walking in now. He is indeed the Shadow <laughs> Treasury Minister. There he comes. So, um, <laughs> he's also the Shadow Theatre Minister and has a good sense of timing. That's kind of <laughs> so I'm just introducing our two people here. Um, it's very unfair to get a round of applause. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> so we're just starting introducing you to say that you're the MP for Norwich South and that you're currently the Shadow Treasury Minister. He also uh, has been Shadow Secretary for Business and before that Shadow Secretary for Defence. And I think it's right to say you studied economics at, at Bradford <laughs> University. Sadly. Um, I think you worked as a journalist in, in print media and then perhaps as a broadcast journalist for the BBC. And I believe you also graduated from Sandhurst in the Office of Training Program <laughs> yeah. um, when, and, and then worked, uh, well, then served in the Territorial Army. Um, he's been a consistent opponent of Brexit, including, unlike many, uh, about the initial triggering of the Article 50 process. And perhaps uh, more germane to tonight, was one of the founders of the Love, Socialism, Hate Brexit group of MPs, which I believe is now called the Love Socialism Rebuild Britain and Transform Europe group of it's MPs. It's a catchy title, it is. Um, <laughs> which probably better captures the full aspiration of, of the group. So we've got um, two great speakers at, at a moment where we really need to think about this, as I say, both for, for Labor um, and for Britain itself. I think we're going to hear from our speakers for you know about 20 minutes, and then we should have a chunk of time at the end for questions and discussions. So can I... We're going to hear Deborah first, then we're going to hear Clive, but can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers, Deborah Mattinson. So um, what I'm going to try and do here is set the scene a little bit 
by thinking about the things that are going to matter as we go into the um, very likely election campaign, maybe in the next few weeks, maybe early next year, um, the things that will matter and the things that will um, decide the outcome by, by thinking a little bit about, about three things, about the kind of the broad context of public opinion and the mood, if you like, of the country, um, and then I'll spend a little bit of time inevitably talking about Brexit. But I also want to talk about leadership because um, I think it really, really matters. And I'm going to start with that. Um, but before I do that, just four things I'm going to flag as we go through. Um, the first is that we are and remain, and this is not going to be a surprise to anybody in the room, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it. We're a very divided nation. And I've been doing this kind of work for a long, long time. I have never seen the country as pessimistic as it is now. I've never seen this level of collective pessimism. Secondly, and this is not going to be a surprise to anybody here, but the public is completely over Brexit, completely beyond itself in terms of hearing about Brexit, very, very, very fed up. The third thing, um, thinking about political strategy and Brexit, what seems to be the case, and it is still the case, uh, for now at least, is that Boris Johnson's strategy, I'm not going to call him Boris, by the way, shoot me if I call him Boris, Boris Johnson or Johnson's strategy seems to be uniting leavers while Remainers remain very divided when they think about what is the best thing to do if you want to remain. And then the final point is that despite his shortcomings, and boy, he has some shortcomings, <laughs> Boris Johnson is nevertheless seen as a significantly better leader than Jeremy Corbyn, and this really, really matters. So, uh, let's start with the divided nation then. And what we see is that we are very, very, very uh, concerned about, uh, about, our, about the country as a whole, about our local area, and about our personal lives. We're a bit more positive about our personal lives. We get, as we get closer to home, we actually get more positive. But thinking about the country as a whole, one in five of us uh, is very pessimistic, and almost six out of ten of us are either fairly pessimistic or very pessimistic. And how pessimistic we are depends on a number of different things, and I don't know whether this will be a surprise to you or not, but the older you are, the more likely you are to be optimistic. So 56% of over 65s are optimistic about the UK in the next year, compared with um, just 29% of 25 to 34s. It also, and this is not very surprising, I think, depends on how well off you are. So if you are AB, social class, more middle class, you are much more likely to be optimistic than if you are DE and working class. And where you live matters too. Um, if you live in the country, you're more optimistic uh, than if you live in a city. And how you vote matters too. Um, and in particular, how you voted in that referendum. So if you're a Leave voter, you are much more optimistic than if you're a Remain voter. 
So when we ask people, as we did in our focus groups, how do you feel about the country as a whole, there's a lot of pessimism. These are the words we ask people just to kind of write down across a, a load of different focus groups. What were the words that spring to mind? And those are the things that came up most often, divided, confused. People said, uh, you know, it's a negative time. We're very negative wherever you go. Uh, uncertainty was another big key word. So people feel very unsure about what's around the corner. And they're pessimistic about a whole range of things. They're obviously pessimistic about Brexit, and I shall talk about that a little bit. But they're pessimistic about the division in society. They're pessimistic about politicians. I'm going to go on and tell you a bit more about that. I thought that might be why Clive was late. Maybe he was trying to avoid hearing me say uh, how people feel about politicians. But they're pessimistic about the economy, about inequality, about the environment, which has gone up the agenda about public services, and there's this general sense that we're a country that's in decline. But Brexit is a really significant driver of pessimism, particularly for Remainers. Leavers too, I mean, 65% of the public is, is pessimistic about Brexit outcome and about what's going to happen, and that includes half of all leavers. Um, but, but leavers, nevertheless, are more optimistic in the end that they're going to get what they want, as you can see these, these bars here, uh, than, than, than Remainers are. And the public remains divided and completely fed up with hearing about Brexit. With the work that we've been doing at Britain Thinks, um, we call it our Brexit Diaries project because it started by asking people to keep diaries so that we could understand what people felt without colouring their views by framing it by asking a question. We think there are four tribes, um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about them. You can decide yourselves which one you belong to. So on the left-hand side of the chart, there are the, the Leave tribes. We have the diehards who are completely optimistic about Brexit, can see nothing wrong at all with leaving. And then we have the cautious optimistic. Uh, optimists who think that Brexit is the right way to go. They voted leave, but they do have some concerns about the uncertainty. And then on the other side of the slide, we have the accepting pragmatists. So they're people who voted remain, but they're now trudging towards leave and kind of think in the end, maybe it'll be okay. And then that final group, the you know, that poor little person there with their head on the desk, the devastated pessimists who simply can't see mm. any positives and are utterly in despair at the fact that we're leaving at all. And I think one of the really striking things is that we've been now tracking this for more than two years, is that actually how little the, the size of those individual groupings has changed over that time. Uh, so really, if you go from the end to the beginning, from the start to, to, to the end here in September, all of those changes, I think, are within a margin of error. Um, so we've seen very, very little change in terms of which of those tribes people b belong to and the overall size of those tribes. But what has changed is people feeling incredibly fed up um, with Brexit. People feel lack of progress, uh, broader disinterest in politics anyway, so very, very low enthusiasm for Brexit-related news. 83% of the public saying that they're fed up with seeing Brexit. Basically, when it comes on their screens, they switch off as fast as they can. And 73% thinking that 
the focus on Brexit has a kind of opportunity cost, basically for all the time that politicians are spending all their energy on Brexit, they're not doing the things that people think really matter, the things that they want to see people fixing. So here's somebody in a focus group talking about crime, which is just one of the things that people mention that they feel is being neglected by politicians talking about Brexit. And the whole of the political establishment is seen to be at fault for this. The whole of the political establishment, that is everybody, every party, leavers, remainers, 83%, say that the entire political establishment has failed the country. Um, and it's quite interesting because often you see quite nuanced debates, people talking about the executive, talking about parliament. Actually, voters don't make that distinction. It's them. It's, it's those people who are in power, and they don't differentiate between parliament, between different parties, between government. And they, they, they pull out three reasons why they feel let down. They feel that politicians are playing political games, serving their own party political purposes rather than putting the national interest at heart. They feel that politicians are failing to take decisive action. And as I've said, this whole point about the opportunity cost, they feel that politicians are neglecting the things that really matter. So when we look at all of that and then we look at the people who are in charge right now, how does this play out for them? And I think what we see is that Johnson's strategy is, is succeeding in uniting levers, which is presumably what his strategy is, while Remainers remain divided. So swing voters are increasingly confused about Brexit. The more they hear, the less they feel they know. And they have very, very low levels of engagement in the detail of the debate. So the kinds of things that the media are focusing on, the backstop, for instance, most people have literally not a clue what that means. They, they have absolutely no idea. And the more that they have no idea, the worse it gets. It's like a vicious circle. So the more they, they hear that coming up on the telly or look at it in a newspaper, the more likely they are to switch over and not take any notice. What that means is that they have a yearning for simplicity. And that desperation and yearning for simplicity means that people are looking for very simple solutions, which means they're looking, they're polarised views. So what we're seeing is that for leavers, a no-deal Brexit is, seems very attractive because they think it's very simple, it's very straightforward. While continued membership of the EU remains a very simple op option if you're, a, if you're a Remainer, it's very straightforward. And anything that's in the middle, that kind of nuance, is lost on most people, which is why it was so difficult to get support for any of Theresa May's deal and why the situation remains so complicated now. People are quite sceptical about the kind of gloomy scenarios that are painted around no deal. Um, 69% say actually you can't predict and they, they liken it to things like year 2000 where people talked about the internet crashing and everything going wrong and they say well that didn't happen and people are now scaremongering around this and it probably won't happen again. So people consistently reject political predictions. They do it anyway but they're certainly doing it here and now and around Brexit. So where does that get us to? What we're finding if you look on the left-hand side, Leave voters do think that Boris Johnson, they do think it right now, will deliver on Brexit. And they are much more likely to be prepared to support him. So if his plan is to mop up as much of that Leave vote as he can and take that vote from, uh, from Farage, 
then broadly he's succeeding. Not totally, but broadly he's succeeding. Whereas if you look at Remain voters, it's a much more muddled picture. Remain voters really have no idea uh, where to place their vote. And then the final point to make is about leadership. And I do want to focus on that for a minute because in the end, my view is that when we look at the next election, views of leaders matter more than anything else. Uh, I'm, so, I'm worried about the formatting on this slide. It's, for some reason, it's sort of all crunched in on itself. But basically, going back here as far as 1979, what we can see is that whoever uh, was the most popular party leader always won. I mean, they didn't actually always win in that, for instance, obviously Theresa May didn't win in the sense of winning an overall majority, but even last time round, she did do better than Jeremy Corbyn. It's easy to forget that because, you know, the narrative became about how badly she'd done relative to expectation, how well he'd done relative to expectation. But basically, tracking that through, we can see that leadership and the popularity of the individual party leader is probably the single best predictor of who is going to win. So, how are they seen? And I would just add as well, if we look, I, mean, this is, I think this is an extraordinary chart. Somebody else put this together and I loved it and stole it. But basically, look how flat everything was. Look how straightforward it all seemed. As recently as 2018, and then look what's happened since. Quite extraordinary. So against that backdrop of volatility, I would argue leadership may well matter even more than we know that it does. Um, we've just done at Britain Thinks a big piece of work looking at views of leaders, what, what people value in leadership and so on. I haven't got time to go through all of that now, but it is on Britain Thinks' website if anybody's interested. But looking at which leaders, and taking a whole range of different leaders, business leaders, historical leaders, historical politicians, international politicians, and then our own group right now, what we see is that our own group right now score much less well than pretty much any of the other categories, with the one exception of Donald Trump, who doesn't do very well either. Um, but, you know, there's Winston Churchill at one end, and then... Jeremy Corbyn picking up the rear at the other. Uh, and again, apologies for the... I don't know quite why this has happened, but, um, I, I mean, the main thing... I won't go through the detail on this, but the main point on this is that actually when you look at a whole range of different things that you might judge leaders on, the winner actually is don't know rather than any of our own current leaders. But within the context of no leader really inspiring a lot of confidence at the moment, Boris Johnson is perceived to be ahead of Corbyn on a number of really important measures. So he's quite well ahead on, has a, a plan for growth in the economy and generally on management of the economy. He's, he's ahead on taking the right decisions uh, in, in the interest of national security. He's ahead on representing the UK well on the international stage. And he's ahead on keeping his promises. Looking at him for a minute, what do people think? Well, they think he's energetic, they think he's charismatic, and they think that he is decisive. He does less well on humility, he does less well on empathy, and less well on being a good listener. If he was an animal... Well, this is quite interesting because actually it depends whether you're a lever or a remainer. If you're a lever, then you see him as a really tough, strong animal. He's a bear or a bull. He's big, determined, 
straight into decisions. But actually, if you're a Remainer, you see him as being a bit vain. He's a peacock or he's a snake. You don't trust him. But one of the games that we played in our focus groups was if this leader was managing a football team, conducting an orchestra, if you're conducting an orchestra, what kind of music would they play? This is quite interesting because what that told us was that people at the moment are placing quite a lot of faith in Boris Johnson having a plan. Now, of course, this could all fall apart. But right now, when we ask the conductor question, they're saying, yes, he is quite like a conductor. He's up there, he's flailing his arms around, you've no idea what's going on, but somehow the music worked. And when we asked what kind of football his football team would play, they said it would be a team that would win. They would really want to win. They'd play dirty, but they'd be really determined to win. By contrast, Corbyn, um, on the plus side, is seen as having a vision, having conviction, and having empathy, but he loses out on being tough, being energetic, and being pragmatic. And 44% say that none of the leadership values that they, that, that, that they value actually apply to him. He's not a strong enough character, said one. He seems understanding, he talks to normal people, but is he tough enough? He lacks the traditional image of being a leader, and it seems that he can't pull his team together. So if he wasn't a politician, another game that we played, um, he'd be an archaeologist. <laughs> he just looks like one with his glasses, he's a bit scruffy, uh, he looks like he hasn't washed, I'm so sorry about this, but this is what they said, not what I said. Um, if he managed a football team, the team wouldn't be cohesive, they'd be planning a secret takeover bid. And if he was an animal, this is quite interesting, actually, this, this last one about not being trustworthy. One of the things I think it's worth just noting for a moment is that as we went into the last election, people didn't know very much about Jeremy Corbyn. Actually, the media tried quite hard to, to stick things on him, like his, you know, supporting the IRA in the past or whatever. This, was, this meant nothing to voters, and they ignored it. Whereas now they've had more time to get to know him. Actually, people spontaneously say these things, so they, they've picked some of this up. You know, he's got things in his past that maybe mean he's not so well equipped to be a leader now. So, Boris Johnson, going back to Brexit, is seen as the leader who's most likely to deliver on taking the UK out of the EU. But one in three voters say they don't know who would make the best Prime Minister. And within this uncertainty, John, Boris Johnson remains the most popular and is twice as likely by voters to be chosen as Jeremy Corbyn. And that's even more true for Leave voters. And just finally, uh, thinking about some of the things over the last few weeks, so um, particularly with Leave voters, his decision to prorogue uh, Parliament, pretty popular. Expelling those Tory MPs, pretty popular suggesting that government might find a way around no-deal legislation, pretty popular. Um, so, and I haven't got a number on it, but again, in focus groups, anecdotally, all of the stuff, the Jennifer Arcuri and so on, I, my feeling is it's priced in with voters. They've already, they, they don't particularly expect him to be doing anything terribly worthy on the relationship front. So, I'll end there. Four key takeaways, I'll go back to what I started with. We are a divided nation and we are very, very pessimistic. We are utterly fed up with hearing about Brexit. 
Boris Johnson's strategy seems to be working at the moment in uniting Leavers, whereas Remainers are, much, are struggling much more to find a home. And then finally, and I really do think this matters, despite his many, many shortcomings, Boris Johnson is seen as a better Leaver than Jeremy Corbyn, and this matters quite a lot. Thank you. I mean, I've been given a slightly different brief uh, with a, a little bit more on the detail of where we currently are and perhaps some of the oops, sorry, strategies that could be pursued in the coming weeks and months. Sorry, I'm just going to try and sort this out. Um, and I wanted to talk about them a little bit. I mean, makes my, listening to you, Deborah, makes me feel like I've just, I've just kind of prepared a complete uh, bubble talk, kind of Westminster bubble talk. But um, I think from that, you probably will be able to perceive that actually there is a divide between where politicians and the politically interested and motivated are and a great number of the public out there, as uh, that talk clearly demonstrated. Nonetheless, my job is to try and to resolve Brexit. Uh, and we're not doing a very good job of that, but that is my job and the job of all politicians. Um, I also, as well, if in the conversation that we have afterwards, really, I'm really interested in talking more about leadership, but also more about the wider um, title of this uh, series of lectures, which is about politics in crisis, which I think Brexit is clearly part of that title. Um, I don't necessarily believe it's the only cause, um, but I think it's one we, I would like to discuss further. So um, first off, I just want to uh, set out a couple of caveats for today's Brexit discussion. Uh, it's also known as arse covering. Um, uh, firstly, you've asked a member of the shadow uh, front bench to talk to you about Brexit strategy. Um, aside from the fact there's a good chance it's changed since I left my office to come here, uh, it unfortunately comes with uh, both advantages and limitations. On the one hand, you get a relatively, and I say relatively, uh, informed speculation and thinking on the matter at hand. Uh, but on the other, you get collective responsibility. And that means I'm expected, like any other frontbencher, to repeat an agreed set of lines. Now, on the issue of Brexit, that latter point has, for a variety of reasons, uh, often been a struggle for many on the front bench. Holding a line on possibly one of the most important decisions this country has taken in the post-war period in a rapidly changing situation uh, with such high stakes is tough, especially when you've had no real input into the said position. And I think also as well, that graph which showed how the Remainers were divided would probably apply to the Labour Party just as, just as well as it would to the population in general. Um, that's where uh, the new uh, MPs group Love Socialism, uh, which myself and other left and centre-left uh, pro-Remain MPs set up, was formed. In the main, it enabled two key things. One, the left-wing Labour Party case for fighting for a confirmatory vote and for staying in a transformed European Union and uh, strength in numbers for MPs and members who wanted to push the boundaries of discourse on the issue and push from a position of support for the leadership for a change in both tone, content and policy. That's meant at critical junctures we've sometimes clashed with the official leadership line, but when we have, we've tried to do so from the position of an honest 
and supportive friend, not a political hostile. And that's been key, because for a long time, the differing views on Brexit within the Labour Party were seen through the lens of loyalty or disloyalty to the Corbyn project. That's now changed and thus opened up the discourse on, the, uh, the discourse on this critical issue. So much so, Labour's public, <coughs> so much so, Labour's vote on Brexit has shifted quite dramatically to the point where Labour is now offering a public vote where the people have the final say in a referendum that will have remain on the ballot come what may. That's a pretty big shift given where we've been the past year. Having said all that, you probably now think I'm going to break collective responsibility and riff freestyle on what Labour's strategy should be. Now, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because A, as we hover on the edge of a general election, I'm not going to willfully jeopardise our chances of success, as slim as they are, according to Deborah's uh, slides, by providing unhelpful headlines in a media desperate for party political splits and arguments, and B, I don't need to. Uh, the situation is so fluid, even after Jeremy's speech today, it's entirely possible to have a free and frank discussion about possible ways forward and the pros and cons of various strategies. However, given Brexit is so large and time so short this evening, I want to focus on the pros and cons of the main tactical stumbling block before us at this moment in time, which uh, is basically what should come first, the sequencing of a general election or a public vote. Do we have a general election first or do we have a public vote first? Can I just, just get an understanding of who here thinks we should have a general election first, just as a, as a matter of interest? Who thinks that's the right thing to do? So there's a few hands. Who thinks we should have a public vote first? Okay, that's interesting. All right. um, so let's. Uh, I think it's carried. So uh, so let's start with um, let's start with Jeremy Corbyn's speech day in Northampton, <laughs> where according to briefings to journalists, Jeremy was going to support a late November general election before a public vote on the condition Boris Johnson had requested and secured the Article 50 extension and taken no deal off the table. Firstly. That didn't happen. Uh, what Jeremy said was, we're, quote, champing at the bit for a general election once a no-deal Brexit is ruled out. And when pressed on when a referendum should take place, he said, quote, the second referendum is what we propose under a Labour government when it has been elected. Now, none of those statements commits Labour to a November election, or indeed an election before a public vote. What it does is three things. One, it's a statement of fact that we're champing at the bit for, to get rid of the Tories. And two, uh, another statement of fact that, uh, of what Labour Party policy is, i.e. it's for a PV after a Labour government is elected. And three, most importantly, it keeps your opponent guessing. Now, I want to expand on this final point a little bit as a tactic. Uh, it's quite clear to me the rules of political democratic engagement have changed. In the US, you have a president who acts with impunity who doesn't, and who doesn't seem bound by the same democratic conventions past presidents have been. Here in the UK, we have a, P a PM of a similar mould, one who is under investigation for misuse of public funds, is a known liar, and quite remarkably threatens to break the law in his, in his quest for Brexit. It's almost as if the concept of political shame no longer has meaning, something politicians who play by the rules have struggled to get their heads around. The journalistic term, his position is becoming increasingly untenable, just doesn't really seem to apply to this new wave 
of strongmen politicians. It's this unpredictability, this ability to confound your orthodox political opponents and keep them off balance, that we should look at in more detail because it isn't a thing of chance, in my opinion. I think it's very deliberate, and I'll explain why. Johnson and Dominic Cummings appear to be operating a Putin-like Gerasimov doctrine. This is the chaos theory of political warfare as put forward by General Valery Gerasimov, Russia's chief of general staff, back in 2013. In effect, it's a vision of total warfare that places politics and war within the same spectrum of activities. Philosophically, but also logistically, uh, the approach is guerrilla uh, warfare. It's uh, waged on all fronts with a range of actors and tools, for example, hackers, media, businessmen, leaks, and yes, fake news. At its core is the long-accepted wisdom of keeping your opponent off balance with misinformation. It's to this background we come to Labour's own recent strategy. Now, I'm not going to stand here and claim uh, that any lack of clarity on our Brexit position has been deliberate, uh, but it has been perhaps an unintentional counter to the Tories' own strategy. Whatever it was, whatever it is, whatever it will be, I think keeping this government guessing of Labour's intention is the right thing to do, given the circumstances. This is one of the most uncharted, politically volatile, constitutionally chaotic periods in modern political history. It's clear to most now Boris Johnson expected Jeremy Corbyn to walk into his bear trap and trigger a general election last month, like the good little opposition leader he was supposed to be. Now, the fact he didn't has left Johnson on his rapidly failing Plan B for a deal with the EU and the now, and the new, and the now prospect of potentially being arrested if he doesn't comply with the Ben Act. Their response has been pure Gerasimovian. Uh, um, basically, one minister tells us a deal is imminent, another, it doesn't matter. The PM says he'll never send an extension letter, but release court papers say he will. Confusion, chaos, disinformation. So why then should the Labour Party telegraph its intent in the coming 10 days to the Tories and allow them to adjust their response accordingly? It's the last thing you'd do. So a strategy, whether intentional or not, that keeps your options flexible, a general election, a vote of no confidence, legal moves, coalition building, depending on what the government does, but also keeps your opponent off kilter. Now that sounds to me like that this is the perfect strategy for the next 10 days. Admittedly, it isn't a great message to sell to the electorate, but it does work politically against opponents trying to do the very same thing. So whether cock up a conspiracy, I would say our ambiguity on sequencing is correct for now. Now, post 31st of October, we need to reassess the situation because after that date, Boris Johnson has, by his own admission, failed to deliver what he promised. This puts him politically at a disadvantage. Who knows what the Brexit Party's response to this will be? Either way, it affords us an opportunity, assuming we get the extension, to look at announcing and building support for either a general election or a public vote first. So let's look at the case very quickly uh, for a general election before a public vote first. Uh, I think, one, it's achievable because both sides will want a general election, although there's a sizable part of the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, that won't, and more on that in a bit. Uh, it builds democratic legitimacy for a PV if the Labour Party wins that election. 
It puts people out of their Brexit misery, one way or another. It ensures a fair um, public vote happens with two viable options on the ballot from my own personal Remain perspective. And it means the party can start to talk about the issues we believe we are stronger on than the other political parties. The case against having a general election before a PV. Many in the Parliamentary Labour Party uh, and the membership are opposed. We may struggle to rally members to campaign. I think that's a real problem. The Parliamentary Labour Party could revolt against the whip to vote for a general election and enter into a general election divided. We're down in the polls and could lose, uh, ushering in a hard Tory Brexit and a hard right government. The government is spending millions on Brexit propaganda. Our manifesto policies will be swallowed by the fact this will be a Brexit election and not fought on the issues that we want to fight on. So that's the case for a general election before a public vote and against. But the case for a public vote first. Well, we potentially get Brexit off the table and on to where we're strongest for a general election. We keep the Parliamentary Labour Party unified and we watch as the Tory party implodes in recrimination for a generations if we can win that public vote. But the case against the PV is the, tra the challenge to cobble together a coalition government seems too great given arguments who will lead it. It reinforces the rights argument this is a political stitch-up by a coalition government with no democratic legitimacy, a parliament that has been poo-pooed by and trashed and traduced by Boris Johnson, and that the new government formed to bring in the PV legislation could be so unpopular, so unstable, it would damage the prospect of winning a public vote if the public turns against us. Now, academically speaking, I think uh, once we're through the current fog of uncertainty, some kind of decisive leadership on the matter is going to have to be shown because ultimately one of the core elements of leadership is convincing others that something that seems unachievable is actually achievable. And I understand quite clearly that the idea of Jeremy Corbyn leading a group of a coalition of MPs, including Conservatives, for potentially up to six months is a real challenge. And I'm not sure it's one that's surmountable. But what I do know is that if that is one of the very few options we have for stopping uh, Brexit, then I think it's one that the Labour Party's leaders will need to embrace and lead on rather than following. And I think that's something that we haven't really seen yet. What we've seen from the Labour Party so far has been a series of tactical moves and changes which have been triangulated and calibrated uh, for maximum political effect. And the, the outcome of that is that some of, the, some of the areas where Jeremy Corbyn could have been seen as strongest, as someone who was principled, who knew his own mind and would stick by it, has been undermined. And so he's kind of, um, he's a USP as a leader has been, I think, in some ways undermined by the fact we've taken this very triangulated approach to the whole thing. But as I'll conclude on, I think at this moment in time, ambiguity serves the Labour Party best for the next 10 days. After that, I think we need to be more decisive. Well, listen, thank you both very much. Um, we've got about uh, half an hour for questions and discussion. 
Um, just while we're waiting for you to put your hands up, I'm going to just ask a first question to get us going. And the, the question I want to ask pertains to the findings of broader opinion surveys about how people would vote were there another referendum and whether the decision was correct. And those polls show that at first it was more or less favouring the outcome marginally, but more recently for a at least two years, it, it's turned around the other way. And there's arguments about that. Is it young people in the electorate? What's doing it? Clearly it hasn't changed very much, but it does seem to have changed. And I wanted to ask you both how that affects what you've respectively said um, briefly. So maybe, Deb. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I remain a bit sceptical about how much change actually has taken place. But you're right, there are structural changes in... Um, the, the structural changes in the population that mean that Remain will do a bit better. And it might be that more young people will vote, because remember, you know, a lot of young people didn't turn out to vote in the last referendum. If they had, maybe things would have been different. But what, I suppose, in, in a way, what we have to think is, what is the question when we talk about a people's vote, which you didn't particularly touch on, but I think is, is actually, the, in a way, the $64,000 question is, what are we asking people to vote on? Um, I, I don't think it that likely that it would be a straightforward remain leave vote, would it? Is that is that what's going to happen? I mean, it's probably more likely to be leaving like this or remaining, isn't it? Yeah, I think if I think if Labour have their way, it definitely would be. I don't think it would be. I yeah, because obviously but, those who want a hard Brexit are, are not in the are not in the game for a, a public vote. So. Exactly. So so if. Which actually begs another question: Why, why Labour isn't retabling the Theresa May deal with a with a vote yeah. attached and yeah. just going hell for leather for that? Yeah. But anyway, that's a that's another that's another question. Um, but uh, you know, assuming that it's leave like this or remain, I, I I'm just not so, so sure. And I, my worry actually is that what do you do? Say, for example, so it was forty eight fifty two. What happens if it's Flipped and it's 52-48, which I think is about as optimistic as most polls that YouGov are doing for the People's Vote campaign get. That's about as optimistic. So what if you get it flipped the other way, but on a much smaller turnout? Because you had quite a high turnout last time. And I think it quite likely, given how people's level of sort of, I'm fed up with all of this and so on, you might get a lower turnout. What do you then do? I think it's really difficult and really tricky. Okay. Um, I think on that, on that final issue, um, I, I would see this flip um, as cancelling out the last uh, referendum if it was of a similar... If it was of a similar turnout and a similar figure. And I think in many ways, you're also dealing with the fact that most people would probably be aghast if there was any kind of thought they would never want to hear the word Brexit again mm. after a second referendum and if you think in many other countries where you have uh, a written constitution um, other countries which have had um, big referenda on big constitutional issues um, have certain criteria built into the referendum and one of them would be a two part referendum yeah. and if you don't get more yeah. than 60% say twice yeah, that's you, you don't do and, and so I think there's yeah. There, there's, there's something in that, and I think you could make the case that actually we've had two referenda, they've cancelled each other out, and now we stay in the default position, unless there is a, you know, a massive campaign and a massive w a willingness of people to want to kind of go back to the whole question again. Um, I think from my own personal perspective, it's anecdotal in terms of your original question, 
When I knocked on doors of people in, in very strong remain areas in Norwich, it is anecdotal, but this is why I was surprised at your, your chart, but there was an overwhelming sense of resignation from Remainers that they'd lost fair and square then, yeah. back in 2016, uh, before Carol Cadwallader and, and, yeah. and, and data analytics yeah. and so on. They'd lost fair and square and that, you know, we're a democratic country and we have to abide by, yeah. by, that, by that decision. Um, and the so, camp have landed that argument very, very much so. And there was, a, yeah. there was a kind of a, a sense of regret, but let's try and get the best deal possible that respects the outcome. And that, that really um, coloured how I approached it. So mm-hmm. I approached it as, and I remember there were people, I could think of them now, some of them who, who work at the LSE, who were saying to me, my God, no, we can't leave, we have to stay, we have to fight this, it's wrong. And I felt as a politician that the democratic legitimacy of that poll was, was strong. And therefore, I went down the path of saying, we have to respect the, people, the, the people's decision and we have to go along with this. But I had some big caveats. And what I think changed my mind and changed the mind of many of my constituents was the way the Conservative Party approached this. So the general election that Theresa May called. So first of all, the Mansion House speech, where she basically kind of set down um, some really kind of tough, hard, quite ruthless positions on where Brexit had to go. There was no sense of compromise. It was almost as if it had been an 80-20 outcome in favour of Brexit. So there was no compromise whatsoever. And you could begin to see how this was turning into a kind of hard-right project. And she went down that path. And that turned people. And then I think finally, calling that general election, and people knew why it was being called. It was because she wanted to have the numbers to put through the, the hardest possible Brexit. And I think that turned people like me and many others off any sense there could be a compromise with an approach like this. And that's where I began to shift. That's where I refused to sign Article 50. And, and that's where I think many people began to see, uh, have a different perspective on it. And I do think, I mean, she, her whole approach, I agree with you entirely. It's, it, it, it's constantly, it's odd to me, um, knowing how public opinion lies and where people started out and, and not really having very strong views at all. Why on earth she didn't start out saying, you know, 52% of us voted to leave, so we're going to leave, but 48% voted to remain, so we're going to leave in a really remainy way, mm. and then construct something that she spent a long time trying yeah. to appease a group of people that she never succeeded in That's appeasing. Right. I completely agree with you. Okay, thanks. Let's, um, let's turn to our audience, and um, I, think, I think what I'll do is I'll take a couple of them at the same time, if you want to just take some notes. So um, this woman here, uh, ne- nearest to the wall, yep. Just, oh, could you just say who you are and where you're from for the benefit of our podcast audience? Um, I'm Catherine. I'm a fourth-year European Studies student at King's College. Um, I'd just like to know if you're the, the Labour position, the policy of ambiguity, whether you're worried that that will push um, Labour leavers away um, at the same time as pushing um, more liberal Remainers away to the, to the Brexit Party and uh, Liberal Democrats, respectively. Okay, let's just hold that thought. Uh, and on the far side over there with the bloke who's got a hand waving around in the air, yep. <coughs> Thank Again, you. who you are and where you're from. Yes, I'm um, <coughs> a senior fellow at the RIT, a professor from Central Party School. If you don't know Central Party School, is, uh, you can take uh, the uh, think tank of the Chinese Communist Party, though we are more than a think tank. Yes, my question is that, Recently, as you said, that is a divided country, divided party. What's wrong with the 
Labour Party. Actually, it's like that. We, I'm not sure if you regarded the Chinese Communist Party or Freedom Party, but in the, at least in the, first, in the past 20 years, when the Labour in power, China-UK relation was better. What's wrong? Is the problem of Jim Corbyn, as the speaker said, or about your policy? As, the, as for the Brexit, for example, the, the Labour says yes. On the one hand, we should remain. On the other hand, we should leave. Though, give, uh, give me, at least give me an idea. Don't know what to do. What's wrong? Thank you very much. Okay. Um, not, uh, if we could keep questions succinct, uh, that would be good. So, do you want to start, Clive? I think maybe this question was yeah. principally directed so, to you. So, just to, just to clarify, my, my argument for kind of constructive ambiguity is for the is to the, until the 31st of October, I, I, for the reasons that I stated that this why telegraph what you're going to do next. No one knows what's going to happen next. It's a kind of three-dimensional chessboard. I think they're they're playing that game. I think we have to. In terms of the optics to the public, it's awful. I completely agree, and, and it's probably why many people don't think we should have um, a general election first. Um, I think the key thing for me here, in terms of where, uh, where, who we're pushing away, the problem for the Labour Party has been is that our electorate covers, if you want, if you could think about it, the two extremes. It covers, a kind of, it covers over the middle ground, mm -hmm. and that means that we're, as a party of the centre, centre-left, are being pulled apart. Um, and obviously within our party there are people who actually want to leave uh, the European Union. Um, Lexiteers, for example, or people who just feel that you have to honour the outcome of the referendum. And we too are trying to hold our party together. And we can go into that maybe in a little bit more detail about how this is a kind of underpinning issue within our modern democracy and within our political system at the moment, that Brexit is actually a function of a broken political system. But I think where Labour has been, where Labour, what Labour needs to do now, very clearly, if it is to bring people back to its fold for the general election, is that it has to have a very specific message. And I think the message that has failed to come across since our conference, it's actually, it's just not been out there, um, is this message that we are going to let the people decide and that Remain will be on the ballot. And our polling shows, and I'm not sure whether you've picked this up, but our polling shows that people who are floating votes at the moment, they actually can, perceive, they actually can see the unfairness of the Liberal Democrat uh, position by uh, axing Article 50 without any further ado and Boris Johnson's hard Brexit. And our position, when it's explained to people, that people get the final say and that Remain will be on the ballot, sounds fair and I think we fail to communicate that. It is a fair position and I think that's what we need to articulate if we're to bring people back to us. Okay, I don't know whether you can address the second question to any extent, but perhaps if you Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I quite got the second question actually if I'm absolutely honest. Do, would you mind just saying again what your question well, was? Yeah, briefly, yes. Sorry. <laughs> I, in that case, can I ask you a question first? Is it, are, you, are you a Labour Party member or not? Um, listen, I mean, I don't, no, 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 no. We, we couldn't understand what you said before. You, you, you are a professor whose profession is to make clear and succinct questions. Could you just very quickly make your question in a two-sentence way? Okay, like that. And then, as you said that, it is almost impossible for the Labour to come back to power. What's wrong? Is it, is it just with the personal, for, for example, the leader of Jimmy Corbyn, or because of your policy? 
Mm. Okay. The, the example I give you is that Brexit. Right. Give me an okay, idea, not it. that clear. Okay. What policy or, okay. or policy? Thank you. So, I can have a go at that. Yeah. Okay, so is, is, the, is the Labour Party in trouble because of the leader or because of the policies? Yeah. Um, and I, I'll answer that, and I also would like to uh, reference Catch's question as well. So, because I think they're, they're related to one another. And I think, I think, as I've said actually in my presentation, I think that if, if one thing matters above all else, it is the leader. Um, because in the end, you can offer people cake every day, whatever you like, and if they don't trust the leader to deliver that, then they're never going to believe it, and that's, that's the problem. So uh, I think taken, I mean, one of the things that we did at Britain Thinks a, a year or so ago was to, to look at a lot of different policies and to test them blind, so not connected to any party, taking policies from uh, both of the main manifestos in the 2017 election. And what we found was that, you know, some of the Labour Party policies are very popular. They're winning policies. But in a way, if people don't believe that Labour is, is, is led by somebody that can deliver those in a sensible way, they're never going to vote for you. I, I do think that. And then just going back to Cash's point, and I completely understand and sympathise with the points you're making, uh, Clive, and also the situation you're in talking about them right now. Um, but the, the, the problem that I have with this constructive ambiguity is just the damage that it is doing to the party brand, and again, particularly to the brand of the leader himself. And, and you know, it might be very clever stuff, but to the poor old voter, it is playing politics rather than putting the national interest first. And in the end, yes, you know, you can cut the opinion polls however you like. You can say maybe if people knew this, they'd think this. And that's what leadership is. Leadership is to say this is what I believe is the right thing to do and to do it and to persuade people to come with you. And if you can't do that, you're dancing on the head of a pin and you're never going to win. Sorry. Uh, okay, Let, let's, let's, um, let's see if we can keep them short. Let's take three this time, and we mightn't answer every bit of everyone. Um, the, the, the woman in the middle there with the bluish jacket. Um, thank you both for your presentations. They were very interesting. Uh, my question is primarily aimed at Deborah. Um, I found your presentation fascinating, but I wanted to hear more from you about the differences um, between men and women in terms of their trust uh, and their attitudes towards leadership, because you've yeah. said repeatedly that leadership's going to be critical at the next general election. And for me, as a young woman, I don't trust Jeremy Corbyn at all. And you talked about the values that people associate with Jeremy Corbyn, about him being authentic, about him being a person of conviction, about having empathy. Again, those are the qualities that I'm looking for in a leader. So I can't help wondering, um, and Clive, it might also be interesting to get your perspective on this, if the Labour Party's missing a trick, in the sense, could it not perhaps potentially be targeting more female voters and in terms of what they think about Boris Johnson as a leader and their views on Brexit and what they want for their children and for the future of the country. Okay, thank you. Now, um, someone further back there. Yep, that gentleman with the red pen. And if you could just say who you are and where you're from. Hi, I'm Steve and I'm a member of the public. <laughs> I've never had such applause in uh, such an esteemed um, place before. Um, looking back to 
um, the Irish dimension in the negotiations. Um, I wonder um, whether there is an echo from the election post First World War when the Irish question was um, of huge interest. And it ended with the Liberal Party split and never again reaching uh, their, um, uh, their degree of representation. And I wonder, with the, the split in the Labour Party over Brexit, whether there is a risk over the present Irish question and Brexit that something may occur again in with the Labour Party. Okay, thanks. Now let's just take one last one. Um, perhaps the gentleman at the back with the glasses. Um, John, uh, also an interested member of the public. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that Clive Lewis said at the beginning of his talk, really, almost your sort of preamble. Because you said, which I understand, that holding a collective line at the moment is quite hard. Mm. But what disturbed me was that you said, particularly holding a collective line into which you've not had much input. Surely, if a member of the Shadow Cabinet has not had much input in, into the, the, uh, the policy, then something is wrong with the way the Cabinet's being run. All right, thank you. So we've got three questions, men and women voters, um, of Ireland and its history and the formation of shadow mm. policy. Deborah, do you want to start, especially with men and women voters? Yeah, the... Uh, comment across them all in one fell swoop if you want to. Yeah. But I, think uh, just I don't think I will, yeah. actually, no. That would be excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah the, 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 I mean, I've spent a huge, a disproportionate amount of my career looking at um, gender differences in the women's vote in particular. Um, and, and in fact, when I first started advising Labour, uh, back in the sort of dark ages, this was, you know, kind of when Neil Kinnock was leader, um, Labour had a massive problem with women, and it's something that a group of us spent a huge amount of time uh, sort of reviewing, coming up with a strategy. Um, I mean, basically what, what we found was that at that point in the late 80s, um, if women hadn't had the vote, Labour would have won every election. Obviously, it didn't win every election. It lost an awful lot of them. So there was, you know, so 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 the women's vote was was a massive thing, and a huge amount of time and energy went into how Labour could better appeal to women. To the point where, you know, fast forward to the Labour government, and um, uh, well, 1997 is a great example. And in a funny way, 2005 is a better example where Labour went into that election behind in the polls, but won. And it was absolutely the women's vote um, that, that, that won it for Labour. And in fact, it was the other way around there. If, 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 uh, if women hadn't have had the vote, um, then the Tories would have won in 2005. And if men hadn't voted, then Labour would have had a landslide, as it was Labour won with about 60-odd uh, 60 seats. Where are we now? Um, and this is quite interesting, and I completely agree with you that, uh, that Labour could be doing so much more than they are to harness uh, the women's vote. And, I, you know, I mean, I, don't get, I, could, I could talk for the rest of the evening on this, so I won't, because you know, I'd be wanting to say things. But, but um, you know, there is a real opportunity with Boris Johnson, who has actually is smaller than you might think, but he has a small deficit with women. Women look at him and don't 
love what they see for lots of very obvious reasons. I mean, some love it a lot, but some don't love it at all. Um, for lots of very obvious reasons. Um, but Labour is absolutely failing to capitalise on that, despite the fact that Labour has held on to that female vote and has done quite well with it, you know, post the Labour government. It still did much better. And a lot of the, the sort of what you might think of as the core traditional values of Labour are things that, that women value much more than men, and in particular, public services. Now, here's the problem. On public services, which is the thing that women value much, much more than men, Labour has a traditional advantage. Right now, Labour is only neck and neck with this Tory government on public services. I think that is a disgrace. And I think that they're, you know, they're, obviously it's something that, um, that Labour should be addressing. And I'm bewildered as to why they're not. Um, I, I think the answer in a nutshell is, 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 is Brexit in terms of why they're not. I mean, in terms of um, being able to focus on those issues, I'm not making excuses, but the, the, the bottom line is, I mean, I'm in a team which puts out policy on a regular basis. It barely gets, it barely gets picked up. Now, that can happen at the best of times, but I think at the moment there just seems to be so much, so, so little political space. I mean, the only kind of other main issue that's managed to fight its way onto the kind of mainstream political agenda in the last kind of year or so is the climate, with good reason. Um, you, know, you may have seen some this week. And I think, ultimately, so many of the policies that Labour is coming out with, we can take some of the responsibility, we have to, for not, being, uh, for not pushing those out in the way they should have, for not explaining them, not articulating them, not getting them out there in that sense. But the other thing is that Brexit is suffocating everything. And that's not an excuse, it's just a political reality. Um, and I understand why there is a section of the Labour Party that wants to have a general election because it believes that in that general election, Brexit will, like it was in 2017, be sidelined and the policies will then come front and centre. I think there's a risk there of like, uh, doing what generals have often done throughout history, which is fighting the last battle, not the one that's coming up. Nonetheless, that's a view that some hold. I, if I just come to the point on, um, on front bench uh, shadow cabinet collective responsibility, there's, quite a big, there's a kind of pecking order inside any political party, any mainstream political party, with the exception maybe of Caroline Lucas, who obviously um, is, is, the, is, is her own cabinet at front bench and PPS, um, what, and, leader of the op and leader of the opposition. Um, <laughs> What happens is you have a leader of the opposition and depending on the party, they will have uh, a core of advisers around them um, and political advisers as well as politicians around them, trusted people, who will make a lot of the kind of executive decisions on day-to-day -day running and policy positions um, that the party makes outside of conference season. Um, outside, after that, you get the shadow cabinet where those decisions are meant to be, in theory... And I think they are discussed and a position agreed upon. Then you get where I am now, which is a kind of rung below that, which is on the front bench, but not on the shadow cabinet. So we, we're basically mushrooms. We're kind of kept in the dark and fed on, on noxious things. So um, we don't get an actual say, other than we get to turn up to the Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, and that's where backbenchers are entitled to then question the front bench and the shadow cabinet and the leader. We don't get to do that because we're under collective responsibility. So we're kind of caught between the two. So it's nothing sinister. It's just the way that the party machine operates. So we don't really get a say as front benches. If you're on the shadow cabinet, you get more. And then obviously, if you're leader of the party, you get a lot more. 
Um, in terms of where, um, in terms of where the Labour Party will split, look, I think all of the well, the two main political parties are dividing, Steve, uh, on this issue. I think in many ways it does feel like we are bags of blancmange being held together by the first-past-the-post political system and fear of uh, fragmenting because of what the, what that, how that could affect uh, Brexit. I'm sure there are people in my party who, if it wasn't for the threat of Brexit, would possibly be seriously considering whether they wanted to stay in the Labour Party. I regret that. I don't want that to happen. I'm just speaking quite honestly and openly from what I know. But what's keeping them there is, is that fact. And I think that may also be a calculation in why some people want a general election before a public vote. Because ultimately, Brexit is holding the political part with the first-past-the-post system, is in many ways this crisis is holding the political parties together. What we're seeing, I think, at the moment, um, for a variety of reasons, part of the crisis in politics, is uh, a political system and a first-past-the-post political system which is in chaos. And I think there are lots of people who just wish we could go back to how things were pre-2008. When everything made sense, I knew, what, I knew what the political parties stood for, at least I thought I did, and the world seemed a lot saner. I don't think even after Brexit's concluded one way or the other, we're going to go back into that uh, very neat uh, world uh, of where people felt the world was and, and, and what it should be. I think we're in this period for the foreseeable future, and we can perhaps come on to that later on tonight, why we're in that, in that period. But I don't think that the Labour Party is going to split before a general election, uh, and I don't think it's going to split before Brexit. What happens after that, I, I wouldn't want to say, because I, I think there is a realignment in politics going on at the moment. Um, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn and um, his, his poll ratings and how he's doing, I mean, look, in his defence, let's not forget, this is someone who has endured um, intense mudslinging from a media which isn't fit for purpose in this country. It's a media which is owned and controlled by the 1%, by the corporations, by and large, in terms of the print journalism. We know on social media now there is a concerted effort by the wealthy and the powerful to influence our democracies. And there have been academic studies, uh, complete academic studies, very, I think, authoritative academic studies, which have shown that actually our mainstream media is biased against the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. Now, having said that, and I think that would affect anyone's poll ratings and, and influence and colour how the public perceives someone, having said that, I think as left-wingers, as socialists, um, in a political party, uh, in power, in an opposition party, you have to assume that you're going to face a hostile media and you have to step up to that challenge. And I think there is an argument to say that we could have done things better. We could have stepped up better. Uh, it's been a steep learning curve. Uh, we've been a very divided party since Jeremy Corbyn came in. That definitely hasn't helped. Um, but I think, no, look, I genuinely agree. It's going to be very difficult for us in a general election with those kind of poll ratings for our leader. But I think one of the ways around it, and I am an optimist, glass half full, one of the ways around it as happened in 2017, one of the ways around that is to push forward other people in the shadow cabinet and on the front bench from the party. So you have a collection, a, coll a collective of leaders with different qualities, different attributes, men and women across the, across from, across the Labour Party, parliamentary party, who can come out and front those um, policies. And I think the final thing is the manifesto. 
I think the manifesto can lift Jeremy Corbyn as well. I don't know whether Jeremy Corbyn can lift the manifesto. I think that would be a mistake. But I think the manifesto and a team of leaders uh, behind him and around him, I think that that could neutralise some of the negatives by simply just focusing on one individual. Okay, I think we've just got time for one last round. Um, so I don't know whether we'll get to answer them all. Um, the gentleman in the middle there with the grey shirt. Um, um, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, uh, right. Um, yeah, thank you for both uh, speakers. Again, I found both of what you uh, had to say, your presentations, very, very interesting and illuminating. I, I suppose my question is more focused at Clive rather than Deborah. Um, uh, this uh, co concept, this practice of constructive ambiguity, I, I beg to differ. I, I, I feel that um, the Labour Party leadership has been engaging in constructive ambiguity since the referendum result. It's not a strategy for the next few days. You've been at it for the last three years. And the problem is, is that this has led to a lot of the findings that Deborah uh, illuminated, this uh, perception on Brexit of a lack of leadership, a lack of a, a, lack of a principled position, this idea that um, the, you know, the, 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 the Labour Party is more concerned about party management like the Conservatives are, rather than the national interest, and a policy position that seems to be Janus faced, facing both ways indecisive yeah, uh, and so on. So I think the strategy has to be Going forward, I, I suggest it has to be to either enter into some kind of electoral uh, pact with the um, Liberal Democrats to consolidate the Remain vote or neutralise the, the Lib Dems, shoot the Lib Dem fox and outbid them by becoming a very clear Remain party. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I just want to say before I choose that, I mean, there are some people in the audience um, who, who look like they might have um, come from school, and we're always very happy to have such people. So if anyone in that category wants to ask a question, do please feel free to stick your hand up. Are you in that category? Yes. So the, the, the person in glasses here. Can you hear me? Is that right? Yes, excellent. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a student here in London. I've just started, but I'm from the south of Norwich. And um, Clive, I have an immense respect for the work that you do there. And my question is, is in the light of what Deborah was saying, when, when the general public generally wants a, sort of a decisive um, a figure, a figure of, of action and immediacy, what can be done in the light of a, of, a, of a rather technocratic and complicated debate such as Brexit? What can be done to sort of ensure that the message, you know, the, 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 the small print is being fully conveyed in, in a debate that's, that seems to be flooded with, with sort of slogans and sound bites and, and things that seem like a, a, a political figure just wants, you know, wants to seem like he's, he's really you know, going for it? All right, thanks. Look, there's not a lot of time. We do have to stop mm. when it's o'clock, yeah. but if we could redress those two questions. Um, if you want to start, do, yeah. do you want me to start, start with Clive's constituent? Mm. Um, so I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. It is very very difficult to get those very complex 
arguments over. And that is why, in a way, what happens is you get this kind of polarisation because people aren't interested in those arguments. They're looking for simplicity. Um, and that then makes it very tough as a leader because you have to decide what your real priorities are. Otherwise, you drown in the detail mm. and nobody notices anything that you're saying. And I think that's why... You know, Boris Johnson's success in the grand scheme of things is quite limited, but actually he is being quite successful at just seeming very clear about what he wants to say. And I think in a way that's always what good leaders have to do, is to, is to, is to really identify what are the key points that you want to get over. Just on the technocratic, one tiny other point I'd like to make is that there's been a lot of talk about referendums and, and what they might be in people's vote and so on. Um, I recently sat on the Commission for the Conduct of Referendums where we, and we made some very interesting um, uh, recommendations which are in a, in a detailed report. One of the things that you can do to ensure that public, the public get across that detail is to run deliberative um, participatory democracy, um, so things like citizens' juries or citizens' panels where you enable the public to get into that detail that they would ordinarily not bother to get into themselves and then you get the public view. It was used very successfully in Ireland on the, um, the, the recent referendum that you know, broke, broke a lot of ground. They set up a, a series of citizens' powers and made sure that people were across the detail. I would strongly urge us to do that um, when, we, when we go into the next phase. So... Um. On constructive ambiguity, I, I, look, the whole point of setting up Love Socialism was because um, people like myself were becoming extremely frustrated at that ambiguity, uh, and it didn't seem to be serving us uh, at all well. Um, and I come from a position of someone who is in a Remain seat, but it's not uh, exclusively Remainers. There are people who are in Leave seats as well. So the argument that we were just out for our own political self-interest didn't hold water. There were people in the group who actually understood that there were bigger geopolitical and strategic issues for the future of this country at stake and made it so important that we spoke out. Um, on the issue of... Um, on the issue of where the party should go now, look, I have some sympathy with where the party, how the party has behaved over the last two years, because our party is trying to hold together elements of the 48 and elements of the 52%. But I think the points that have been made tonight about the fact that people are tired of this, they want some kind of clarity and some end to this, means that the time for that constructive ambiguity has probably, or very soon, come to an end. In fact, it perhaps should have come to an end a little bit longer ago, but because we are where we are now, and because the last 10 days are extremely delicate and extremely important, I don't think this is the next 10 days where we want to basically change from that position at this moment in time. I think we have to keep the Tories guessing. However, my views on this are really well known, as are most love social MPs. We want to see the Labour Party come out with a clear and unambiguous message to people out there that we are a party of Remain, and that we will fight and campaign for that. I've been very public about that. That's what I want to see. I think the current position that we have is better than the Liberal Democrats, that no matter what happens, the people get the final say and Remain will be on that ballot. The next step I want, and I think lots of people in the Labour Party and MPs want, is for the party itself to officially campaign for that. Um, and I think that's the, that's the bit that's missing. And then I think that ambiguity would have evaporated, uh, more or less. 
Um, in terms of um, my, my, my constituent from Norwich South and welcome, um, I, think, I think the basic thing I want to see is decisive leadership. I want to see Jeremy Corbyn come out and at a given point go hell for leather on what it is he's chosen. I might not like what he's chosen. Some of you might not like what he's chosen. You might like what he's chosen. But I think the point's been made tonight that sometimes, as a leader, you have to pick out the, the trees from the wood or the wood from the trees and be able to drive that forwards. And at the moment, that is the component, I think, that is missing. I hope we'll see it in the next two weeks. Okay, listen. Um, um, we've got a heckle at the end. An excellent audience. Um, if you want to, if you, I mean, I think Keir's been. I just say on that. I think Keir's been really good. But Keir, I, I, I think you'd be surprised. I don't think Keir's a leader. I think he's a technocrat. Um, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going to go at Keir. I think he's a brilliant politician. I think he's been brilliant at what he does. But I don't know whether I couldn't tell you uh, whether Keir could lead on this any better than Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know. I think the jury's out on that. You have your opinion, and you're entitled to it. Okay. My opinion is that this is a matter of high importance that is being discussed widely, despite the exhaustion with it. And here at a scholarly institution, it's particularly beholders us to consider it in a rounded and thoughtful way. And we've had two people that have done that, coming from very different positions. So can we thank our audience?